0: Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
1: Buddhism is making an amazing claim. It's saying the reason we suffer and the reason we make other people suffer is because we don't see the world clearly. So by clarifying your vision, you can become happier and you can become a better person, a morally better person.
2: Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network, a place where you can find your podcasts. Uh, this is a fun episode. It's actually an episode I've wanted to do for a long time. It's sort of nicely off of the, the typical news and issues we sometimes cover here. Uh, I've got Bob Wright on this week. He's the author of the new book, Why Buddhism is True. He's also the author of a bunch of great books about science and religion. He is the rare author who's really at the intersection of those two topics. He's written The Evolution of God, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, Non Zero, which I cannot recommend enough, The Moral Animal. Scientists and Their Gods, uh, and it it keeps going on. He's a co-founder and editor-in-chief of bloggingheads.tv. He's written for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, anybody you could think of. Um, He also teaches at Princeton, where he created the popular online course, Buddhism and Modern Psychology. So I'm pretty interested in mindfulness meditation. You've heard me talk about it a bit on the podcast before. What I really liked about Bob's book, and, and the reason I wanted to have him on, was it's not like most books on this topic. It's not a simple how to meditate guide or why you should meditate guide. It is not about how meditating will reduce your stress level or make your cardiovascular health better. We've gotten into a very life hacky space with that conversation, which is useful. And and if if you meditate or want to meditate for that reason, great. This book is really about theories of consciousness, about theories of how the mind interacts with the world, about the ways in which pretty ancient Buddhist philosophies and uh, insights about how we experience the world around us connect to more modern evolutionary psychology, research, and evidence about how we are built to experience the world around us. This is a book, and in this case a conversation, that is about the illusions we have and what makes us unhappy and what helps us see the world in a clearer sense. Some of that is mindfulness, but but as you'll hear us talk about in, in this podcast— Some of it isn't, and mindfulness is by no means a a straight line or an easy way towards any of that. So we do talk about meditation. We talk about meditation retreats. Um, I'm very interested in what it is like to do these 10-day or longer silent meditation retreats. We talk about psychedelics and pharmacology. We talk about um, theories of Buddhist philosophy. We talk about boundaries of the self and the ways in which that is created by evolutionary psychology and the way we experience the pain of animals and all kinds of things. It is a a fascinating and, as I say, wide-ranging conversation. Bob is a super, super smart guy and a very clear explainer and very vivid storyteller. So I really enjoy talking to him about these issues. Um, So without further ado, here's Bob Wright. Bob Wright, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Ezra. Thank you for writing the book. I have read it. I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was fantastic. That's wonderful to hear. So, Given that so much of the book, so much of, of Buddhism and mindfulness itself insists on beginning with experience before you try to intellectualize it, mm-hmm. I thought I'd ask you about the experience first, because I'm personally very interested in this. What is a 10-day meditation retreat like? In, in, in detail, how does it feel your first or second time? Okay, my first meditation retreat for
1: the first two days felt horrible. Uh, I had never succeeded in meditating, although, of course, meditation teachers will tell you you're not supposed to think about success or talk in those terms. But anyway, I'd never done what I considered succeeding. Um, So I, you know, I decided to go to boot camp and uh, and do this was a one week silent meditation retreat. Bootist camp. Sorry, Uh, (laughs) Bootist camp. That's good. That's good. You should have written this book. This podcast
2: is free, everybody.
1: Um, but slowly, I mean, I I was like, by the end of day two, I hated everything about it. I hated myself because I couldn't focus on my breath and so on. By the end of the week, I felt transformed. My consciousness was in a totally different place. I had a much deeper appreciation of beauty, uh, and saw it in things I hadn't expected to see it in. Um, I was much less judgmental about people. I remember, on the first day of the retreat, you know, you're looking around sizing up the other retreatants and you're not going to be talking to them. So you might as well evaluate them on totally superficial grounds, of course. And I saw a guy um, wearing a Juilliard t-shirt and I thought, oh, well, aren't we special? You know, I mean, that's the way you're uh, at least I am sometimes inclined to be just totally superficial evaluation. Um, At the end of the retreat, uh he stood up, you know, the silence was broken. You could ask uh, questions of the teachers. He stood up and he was just the most kind of timid soul you could imagine. So I totally misjudged him to be a prima donna. Um, but but by the end of the retreat, I was doing a lot less of that. At the end of the retreat, I called my wife and she says that before i had even said anything about the retreat, just by the tone of my voice, she liked the new Bob much better than the old Bob. And in addition to this kind of gradual transformation of consciousness, I had some Striking experiences while meditating. I I had, you know, what I think of as kind of my big breakthrough. Finally, kind of quote succeeding in meditating. I also had, you know, a a kind of mind-blowingly dramatic experience that probably we shouldn't get into because it's too weird. Well, then we should. Then we need to get into that experience.
2: (laughs) You (laughs) You can't can't do that.
1: Maybe not the way I should uh, should have put that. But let me. You want me to tell you about the less mind-blowing one? My big. This is what I consider my big breakthrough.
2: Yeah, Um, well, well, let let me actually, I'm going to bracket your two mind blowing ones here. I want to put those aside for a minute because I want to hear what the fourth day is just like, not what the peaks are, not what the lows are. But for those of us whom I've actually I had signed up to do a long meditation retreat that didn't end up working out because Donald Trump did something and I had to be here to cover it. (laughs) But but I would like to do this. But it is very hard for me to imagine as somebody who struggles to sit for 30 minutes and, and mm-hmm. focus on my breath what the 78th or 112th hour of this is yeah. like. Well, at that point, it's getting good
1: generally. Um, the, the pain is over. Um, it's not to say you won't have ups and downs. I mean, you can do some pretty deep personal exploration on a retreat that that may not be entirely comfortable, but... Your mind is generally in a much calmer state. Um, And calm sounds like kind of nice, but not deep. And yet, being deeply calm just allows you to see things um, that you've never seen in a certain sense. It's a totally different perceptual framework. I remember I was taking a walk in the woods on the first retreat and. I happened upon this weed, it's called a plantain weed, that I had spent a lot of time trying to kill because it, it infested my lawn. And I just suddenly, um, I I thought, why have I been trying to kill this weed? It looks as beautiful as all the other plants. And at one level, that is a, a kind of a trivial observation. You know, you are just, in a way, it was recognition that weed is a human-imposed category. It's not, there really isn't a fundamental difference that's stamped on the DNA of weeds, right? It's just, we it's a fairly arbitrary category, but the interesting thing was this was such a deep perceptual shift. Uh, it's kind of hard to describe, but you are no longer seeing essence of weed in the thing. That's in a way another example of not being judgmental in a certain very generic sense, but it also it also hints at Some of the kind of uh, really deep experiences that these very adept meditators who have meditated for like jillions of hours, uh, the kinds of experiences that they have much more commonly and and much more kind of thoroughly, so to speak. It was just, I mean, living was just like a delight by day four. I mean, just there was like nothing in particular you were yearning for that you didn't have. uh, Nothing in particular that was bothering you that you wanted to
2: get rid of It was a nice place to be you you wrote in the book uh, that doing a long meditation retreat is like extreme sports, that it is both sublime and harrowing in a rough ratio of four to one what is what is the harrowing like what What are the moments that that are real suffering?
1: Well, It depends on what your issues are, I guess. I mean, remember- I I, I have a lot of issues. Well, good. I'd be happy to hear about them and provide any therapy I can, (laughs) As although that part's not free. You know, it does depend on your issues. I am prone to remorse and uh, sometimes the borders, I guess, on self-loathing and to doubt decisions I've made. Um, So I remember on one retreat, um, I was plagued by the thought that I had gave a bad kind of guidance to one of- my daughters, who is at one of these junctures in life where you have to make a big decision that's going to shape things. Um, So that, you know, that haunted me. I mean, it it had been haunting me for in real life. The haunting went on, um, but I kind of worked through it and in a sense worked through it at a more profound level, I think, than I might have otherwise.
2: Can I uh, I interrupt you here for a second? I'd like to know what you mean when you say worked through it, because I meditated for a minute. I actually want to just mm. real quickly signpost for for listeners. This is not going to be however many hours just on meditation. This is a book about the mind and the experience of of reality in, in very interesting ways. And so I want to set the table of meditation to talk about that. But it's not just going to be Ezra asks Bob questions about meditation. <laughs> but that said, when you say worked through it. Something I struggle with when I'm trying to, to spend some time quietly <laughs> focusing on my breath is, am I there thinking about something that is bothering me and trying to work through it and get to some kind of clarity on it? Or every time that comes into my mind, am I supposed to gently put it back down and get away from it?
1: That's interesting. And and uh, it reminds me of an exchange I had with a meditation teacher on a retreat This was probably my fifth or sixth retreat. And he said, um, this just speaks at the kind of two levels that these things can in principle be addressed at. He said, um, you know, there is cognitive behavioral therapy where for people not familiar with it, the therapist basically gets you to kind of... um, Reconceptualize your anxiety and examine the logic behind it. Like, is it really, you know, very likely that whatever horrible thing you think is going to unfold is going to unfold? What would happen if it did? And so on. So you examine the logic behind it, the story you've been telling, and you kind of try to replace it with a new story. And what this teacher said is, he said, that's great. Cognitive behavioral therapy works for a lot of people. And a new story, a reconceptualization of the problem can really solve the problem, he said. But at the deepest levels of Buddhist meditation practice, you are just beyond stories. You're not replacing the uh, the kind of pathological or, you know, kind of suboptimal and painful story. You know, like I'm a jerk. Um, I, I, I made this bad decision. My daughter will be haunted uh, for life by it. You're not replacing that with a better story. Like, no, actually, for all you know, this will work out fine. He said it's like beyond stories. Now, I think he's talking about a very profound level of meditative practice. But but it is, and and I would say at a more, I don't want to say superficial, but a lef, a less profound level. And 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 now we're talking about the zone that I am myself more likely to occupy. It is often that you're reconceptualizing it, telling yourself a more constructive story about it, and the meditation permits that, right? I mean, we should start by saying that one early form of, you might say, progress in in mindfulness meditation can be to look at a feeling that has been giving you trouble, like anxiety, and by accepting it and not running away from it and not saying, how can I get rid of this? actually, ironically, developing a more objective view of it. So you get closer, you know, you, you, you get closer to it, you accept it, you experience it, you examine it, you know, I, it's like, okay, I'll just take a look at this. And then you actually get more critical distance. And then it starts to lose its grip on you. I mean, I've had experiences where like looking at anxiety was like looking at a piece of abstract art in a museum. It's just, oh, it's interesting, but it no longer has a grip on me. And then it it often dissolves. But my point is, that phase of getting a little removed from a feeling that has been gripping you lets you let go of the story associated with the feeling, the narrative that has been so intertwined with the feeling of anxiety, like, I'm gonna screw up tomorrow. um you know this is this is the biggest crowd I've ever spoken to, and they it really matters. And, uh, and 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 I'm or whatever, or I made the, the wrong decision, whatever narrative is tied in with the feeling. If you, if you get a little distance from the feeling, that gives you enough space to start um, telling if you want to replace it with a narrative, which which I, I often do um, tell a more constructive one and and often a more true one. Like in the case of did I give my child bad guidance, I mean, anybody who's paying any attention to the way lives actually unfold will tell you, you have no idea. There's just no way of knowing what thing will lead to what. The most seemingly dire circumstances turn out to have great implications given the way life unfolds. That's an actually true story. And looking at your, the feeling of guilt or remorse or whatever in a different way can leave enough space to... To, to, to let that story kind of uh, replace the
2: old one. So that that feels to me like a, a useful segue here. And I know I've bracketed the, the question of your breakthrough experiences, and I'm, I'm gonna keep them, keep them bracketed for a minute to, to get into this, because what, what really interested me about your book is I've read a lot of books on mindfulness, and they are traditionally, I think, persuasive how-to guides. Mm-hmm. They're about how to do it, about how to experience life in that way. And I would say the bulk of your book, drawing on your background, writing about evolutionary psychology and and science of different kinds, is much more in an interesting way about Buddhist philosophy, how whether or not you do this mindfulness stuff, the basic arguments that it is making, that um, this tradition makes, are actually reasonably accurate guides, given what we now know, about the somewhat confused, illusory way we experience the world and so I wanted to to maybe go there because you just mentioned the stories we tell ourselves and the ways in which the ones that feel true to us often aren't true. And you wrote in the book that after immersing yourself in evolutionary psychology, that that taught you a lot about your situation, but that it didn't make your life any better. That that knowing how your mind works and why it works that way can actually make your life worse. So right. I wanted to begin there. Where, what way, what in what ways did learning more about the operating system of your of your own psyche make your life worse,
1: right? I mean, first of all, you're right. This is not a how to guide. It's not a how to be happy book. If anything, it's a book about why, if you pursue meditation informed by Buddhist philosophy, you can consider what happiness you do achieve to be a kind of valid happiness in the following sense. I mean, Buddhism is making an amazing claim. It's saying the reason we suffer. And the reason we make other people suffer is because we don't see the world clearly. So by clarifying your vision, you can become happier and you can become a better person, a morally better person. And so I'm making the case that the kind of happiness that is promised here is a kind that involves a clearer view of the world and in a certain sense, a clearer moral view and actually um, better behavior. Now, as for um, how evolutionary psychology led me to Feel a need for some sort of solution to the human problem of this sort. So yeah, I'd written this book on evolutionary psychology, The Moral Animal, long time ago in the 1990s when evolutionary psychology was just kind of surfacing um, as a as a thing with a label. And um, I noticed a couple of things. One, natural selection did not design us to be happy. Right. And I I use designed in quotes, of course, because natural selection is not a conscious process. But but the point is, I mean, just to take the most commonsensical example, you know, gratification evaporates. You eat the donut, you have sex, you get the promotion, whatever. It feels good for a little while and then that evaporates and you want more. Now, that just makes perfect sense for a way that natural selection would design animals because if you imagine the opposite you imagine an animal just eats one meal and then says okay I'm good I don't I'm not, hunger never returns I, well that animal will starve and not not get genes into the next generation and getting genes into the next generation is is natural selection's bottom line the criterion by which it uh engineers animals the other thing i noticed is that we are not designed necessarily to see the world clearly we have illusions about ourselves Uh, We have uh, illusions about other people, some of them very morally consequential. Even this business of gratification, of of kind of evaporating gratification involves a kind of illusion just in the sense that or or an unbalanced perspective in the sense that we look forward to gratification without being aware, without really consciously thinking that actually it's going to be kind of fleeting. We may actually feel worse uh, afterwards um, than we do before. So. Natural selection, and, and I mean, th- there's one more thing about natural selection. Not only is it kind of happy to create animals that suffer, you know, for example, that feel fear recurringly, just because every once in a while the fear pays off. Like you, you're you're taking a hike and you're fearing rattlesnakes and you and you get scared to death like 20 times, and then maybe the 21st there is a rattlesnake, and so it was good that you were, you know, you were feeling fear. I mean, not only does natural selection. Design unpleasant feelings into us that often are not necessary in specific incidences, but kind of in some sense pay off in the long run. In addition to that, in the modern environment, you know, all these feelings are not even functioning well from natural selection's point of view, right? And that's one reason there's so much anxiety. You know, we, we are designed by natural selection to care about what other people think of us because, because social status and, and social esteem uh, mattered during evolution in terms of getting genes in the next generation. But now you're thrown into all these weird situations, you know, walking into a cocktail party where you don't know anybody that, that doesn't happen in the kind of hunter gather environment that we were designed for um, or public speaking, you know, ab- addressing a bunch of people whose opinions matter and whom you've never met. That's not natural. So, and also a lot of situ- situations, our children are in, you know, dropping a toddler off at a daycare center, um where you don't know anybody and it's the first day and you're you're sitting at home going oh my god what have i done these are all unnatural things so, you, so you're taking natural emotions in this case these are anxieties putting them in a novel environment and they make you miserable to no good effect they are very often just unproductive and so i was aware of all this by the time i finished researching evolutionary psychology and moreover, if you may have noticed, the, the prescription kind of is matches in some ways the Buddhist prescription. In other words, we don't see the world clearly. We are inclined to suffer, and Buddhism posits a strong connection between the two. But what evolution evolutionary psychology doesn't provide is a, a prescription. If anything, it, it made me more miserable because I was more acutely aware of the absurdity of a lot of human existence and a lot of my own suffering. Um, but it didn't offer me anything to do about it. Whereas Buddhism has not only a diagnosis, but it has a prescription, a path that you're supposed to follow to alleviate your suffering, to help you see things more clearly, um, that involves meditation as well as, you know, teachings. It isn't just meditation.
2: So this is a a weird comment, perhaps, but I've felt that way a little bit about mindfulness meditation. So I've, over the past couple of years, have tried to do it pretty regularly. And (laughs) I have the experience, which I think is part of the experience you're supposed to have, where I sit down and really, really rapidly get a firsthand seat to how completely out of control my own mind is. How holding onto my own breath for 10 breaths, not for 20 minutes or 10 minutes or five minutes, but 10 mm-hmm. is an almost impossible task. Yeah, And the recognition of on the one hand, what, what seems to me to be a pretty profound reality, that the thing I think of as myself is a lot less under the control of what I think of as myself. Mm-hmm. That's very profound and it's very interesting. But also there's been a, a way in which it's been quite dispiriting, uh, much in the ways that, that you for for evolutionary psychology, to sit there and realize how just completely on its own track my thoughts are. And just how much um, anxiety and uh, just a feeling of being sped up uh, that that brings to me has been, I'd say, a little disorienting. Actually, not it has not brought me the calm and (laughs) gentle demeanor that I had maybe gone into this hoping.
1: Yeah, well, that is. I mean, as I said, the first two days of my first retreat were kind of miserable, and and I had the problem you have and a lot of uh, people have, which is just you realize how restless your mind is and how kind of manically it wanders from thing to thing and how hard it is to focus. And I guess I'd say a couple of things. One is, again, this is the reason you don't just meditate. There are teachings to help you interpret um, what you are observing. And uh, the other thing I'd say is that you should appreciate that you're having actual insights. The, the difficulty in meditating is itself an insight, as you kind of said, I think. I mean, you, you, you are not uh, – you're not in control. I mean, I mean you know, and, and this, is, this is an area where modern psychology has corroborated a longstanding uh, Buddhist teaching that the conscious mind is much less of the CEO and the decision maker and the thought thinker than it thinks it is. And so this is actually the beginning of insight into appreciating that, um, whereas you've been thinking that you're the pilot of the plane, the plane's actually largely on autopilot, and thinking that you're the pilot actually doesn't help, and if and in some ways it hurts. But you're right, it's a hard hurdle to get over, to, to accept these things when you're so accustomed to what is the intuitive view of the nature of the human self, you know, which is weight. I want to be in control. And now I realize I'm not because I can't even focus on my breath for 10 seconds. But it's
2: this weird. It is this weird dimension, even the way we talk about it. It has made me question the phrase I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it, and I think implies so much directionality. You should
1: totally, you should totally question that phrase. I mean, one thing uh, meditation teachers, even though, again, that's the intuitively appealing way that we think about it. It seems like that. I'm, I'm thinking, but one thing meditation teachers say, I've heard it on retreats, at least, is thoughts think themselves. And now the reason they're saying that in part is because if you get your mind to a state of sufficient calm and this is easier to do on retreat than via a daily practice although a, a daily practice definitely has its rewards and you can you can reach certain levels of 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 calm with 20 30 minutes a day but on retreat you you might get to a point where you just almost literally see the the thoughts float in from left field so to speak and you realize wait a second i didn't I'm the, the the me the conscious me didn't generate that. I, I am accustomed to kind of g- grabbing it and claiming ownership and thinking myself uh, of myself as its author, but that's not really what's going on. And you know, one reason uh, I I won't get into this any more than you want, but I, but I get into a a model of the mind that is. A a lot of psychologists like there's evidence in favor of it. I find very appealing called the modular model. I want you to to know,
2: Bob, my literal next question is tell me about the idea of modules. (laughs) Okay. so so please get into this as much as you would like. Okay. this is actually a part of your book that I found really interesting and I it, it, it felt right. And I don't emotionally feel like I understand it. So I would love to hear you explain it.
1: A lot of meditators have told me that it helps them make sense of their practice, this modular model of the mind. And here's the idea. And this came largely out of evolutionary psychology because from an evolutionary point of view, what you'd expect is it's not like natural selection sat down and thought, well, what would a a good human mind be like? Here, I'll design it, you know, all at once. No, it, 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 it kind of it evolved through accretion at different points in evolutionary history different features were built into the mind that were designed to solve different features so it makes sense that the mind might be not so much a single actor which is what the conscious self kind of feels like but actually a lot of actors so there might be a little module and and these don't occupy specific regions in the brain they tend to be distributed over the over the over the brain i mean any given module can be kind of drawing on on different parts of the brain but Maybe there's a module that is in charge of getting you to eat food, right? Animals seem to have one. And maybe there's a module that, when you're in the presence of someone you want to impress, focuses you on that task. Okay. And suppose you're at a cocktail party, and I'll bet you've had this feeling. And there's on the one hand, there's this person you'd like to impress, but you can see the hors d'oeuvres right and you may feel like actually a little conflict and and in a way the less kind of quote important the person is you're talking to by your lights maybe the more likely you are to perceive uh the food and and you might actually feel uh, conscious conflict. Between I never these-
2: allow social climbing to get between me and hors d'oeuvres. <laughs> oh. This is a general life rule. Well, you
1: know, I had assumed that anyone who's achieved your stature would have had it exactly the other way around, Ezra. I'm very impl- – you must be a true natural.
2: I think I just I- got negged.
1: Uh, <laughs> no, no. I'm impressed. You built an empire. I, I am truly impressed. Vox me. is a great thing. I mean it. Um, but the idea in the, uh, in, in the modular model is that a lot of the competition, although sometimes you're conscious of it, a lot of it is taking place subterraneanly. So different modules, they're at work, they're trying to, you know, uh, they're processing information. And, and the idea is that whatever thought you're thinking at a given time, that's coming from the winning module, so to speak. There's, there's a competition subterranean and the winning module kind of Uh, injects its thought into your mind. And, you know, another time you see this is when your mind is wandering and say you're sitting down trying to meditate, trying to focus on your breath, but your mind's wandering from thing to thing. Oh, I forgot to do this thing for my daughter. You might say that that's a module associated with obligations to kin or something. And, and, oh, that person over there is really attractive. That's like some kind of mate you know, seeking whatever you, you, you can do this all day. But when your mind is jumping from topic to topic, uh, the thinking is that these are different modules that are being given access to consciousness. And so this I mean, a lot of a lot of meditators who have they've heard teachers say thoughts, think themselves. And maybe they've actually experienced it, although this this is, I think, a harder thing to do than to get a, a, a kind of objective, more objective relationship to your feelings, which I described earlier. I think that 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 progress tends to come before a truly objective view of thoughts. Um, but people have had these experiences have said this. This module model makes sense to them, and I'm glad because it makes it makes sense in terms of the the science and in terms of Darwinian theory. Does that help or do
2: you? It, it does a bit, but let me let me ask you about the science because the thing about the module model is it feels very true to me. The the way mm-hmm. I understand it is that what you're saying is there is this kind of constant testing ground happening in your head, and and you write in the book that how does a module prove its strength? It it basically elicits a response from your feelings. And, and I find that. I find that the things, I'm a very obsessive thinker um, and the things that I obsess about are the things that have very strong emotional responses in me, anxious responses, fearful responses, whatever they might be. Um, sometimes happy ones too. Uh, but what I don't really understand is when you say that that's connected to to evolutionary psychology, to the science, What what is the explanation for that? Because it isn't clear to me at all. In fact, it feels... I am often extremely meta-frustrated at myself for the amount of attention I give things that I'm quite sure are unimportant compared to Mm. things that, you know, even if I were just taking not my view of importance, but an evolutionary psychology view of importance, I think you would imagine that I would just spend a lot more time thinking about mates or, you know, making myself look more attractive. I I could come up with with a bunch of hypothetical ones, but it doesn't seem to track what I actually obsess over.
1: Well, sure. But again, I mean, as for that part, I'll I'll get back to the kind of modules thoughts and feelings part if you want. But as for that part, one thing to remember is we are in an environment nothing like the environment we were designed for. You would not expect. I mean, look, for starters, people use contraception all the time. So in that sense, You know, it's like we're not getting genes in the next generation. Contraception is a part of the environment that right away ensures that we are not doing what natural selection, quote, wants us to do, which is fine with me if we define natural selection's uh, value system. But, um, you know, you might see someone and you think this is probably more me than you or than most people. But I think I said something that may have offended them. You know, that that can plague me. And, and especially if i am w- not going to see them again it's it's not quite such a dramatic thing that it warrants an email where you know which would just make things weirder if i if i sent them an email and said wait did i no uh, and and this is not normal i mean remember the environment we were designed for was like the same group of people 40 50 70 people those were your society that was your social universe you knew them all very well and you didn't like see one and say something and then not see them for six months. You know, <laughs> it's like the so but and yet you did care what people thought of you. That part is natural. But but um. so this is one reason that in the book, I tell the the evolutionary backstory behind feelings so that people can understand that they should have a certain skepticism toward feelings um that are plaguing them. You know, skepticism about the validity and usefulness of the feelings, because this is kind of a message from Buddhism anyway. I mean, mean, mindfulness encourages a certain skepticism of feelings. When I said in the book that um, thoughts actually tend to have feelings, however subtle associated with them, some thoughts make you feel good, some thoughts make you feel bad. Sometimes that's obvious. You know, the, the the thought that you might win the lottery feels good. That's obvious. Sometimes it's less obvious. But the claim is that um, thoughts tend to have feelings associated with them and that strength of feeling, whether positive or negative, is the criterion by which the thoughts are admitted to consciousness. I want to emphasize the latter part is my conjecture that that is the, uh, criterion of admission, the, a conjecture I'm making in the book. I'm probably not the first to say it. It's just that it's not, I'm not citing anybody. I'm sure other people probably have thought of this, but, um, but it, it makes sense because remember in evolutionary time, if you want to go back to our most distant ancestors, you know, all the way to bacteria, if you want, there were feelings before there were thoughts, right? I mean, the animals just approach things that are good for them in Darwinian terms, like food and mates, and they recoil or, you know, run away from things that are bad for them, like predators or, or toxins or, or whatever. So feelings, they were the guidance system before the human brain, as we know, it started getting built. And it just makes sense that uh, thoughts and perceptions in general would draw on that fundamental guidance system rather than in, in any sense escaping them. And this is this is something that's more and more appreciated by psychologists. Just just the I, by this, I mean, the intertwining, the fine intertwining of feeling with cognition and perception and thought. But it has been a part of Buddhist psychology for a long time.
0: Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
3: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact.
2: We have different ways of trying to implement the understanding that, that you're laying out here, ways to find our minds racing a little less, to focus a little bit more on the present moment. You could take an Adderall and a Xanax every day, or at a higher level, you could take LSD or psilocybin and and find your sense of self-dissolving. Mm-hmm. What is the argument? What is the way in which uh, steady mindfulness practice is doing something different or doing something more effective than just trying to address this mismatch between our temperament and our our world through pharmacology?
1: I mean, first of all, I would say if people have severe problems, they should address them with whatever works. I'm not like anti-pharmacology, either, you know, the exploratory kind, psychedelics, although those are, you know, should not be done casually, or the, the therapeutic kind, you know, SSRIs and so on but I think the results are a little uh, different. I'm not aware of a drug whose effects I've heard described that sound like the product of mindfulness meditation when I'm doing it at kind of my most devoted. You know, like right now, I just did a big book tour and my practice is like virtually in a shambles. I find it hard to practice on the road. But when I'm doing When I'm doing not only 20, 30 minutes in the morning, but supplementing that with with five, 10 minutes, maybe once or twice later in the day, it's an interesting combination. You know, in a certain sense, a, a buffering from the things that would normally unsettle you, like, you know, emails that might annoy me so much I'd be tempted to reply or, or excruciating self-doubt, or, oh, I screwed up, or oh, I did the... There, There is, in a certain sense, a, a buffering in the sense that those things are impacting you less, but the sensitivity of the perception is not gone. I had an experience actually on the book tour. Uh, I'd spoken at Powell's in Portland, great bookstore, big crowd, and I had afterwards met a couple of friends, one of whom had helped put me on the path to Buddhism. He lived, he's a professor at Portland State, another one I had known in college. And after the, I had uh, coffee with him, I was going back to my hotel room and just felt kind of sad. For one thing, you're going to an empty hotel room. But also, I. the truth is, you know, we said, we'll see you later. Truth is, I'll probably never see these guys again. And I, I think the sadness I felt was in appreciation of that moment. And I did feel it. But I kind of stopped and tried to look at it mindfully and i think i did succeed in looking at it in a way i would not have looked at it before i meditated and again this is hard to describe but it, it it's i was perceiving the feelings that are sadness i was kind of perceiving them you know with a maybe i don't know from enough remove or with enough space around them so that they were not going to lead me into a spiral of of melancholy that was going to ruin my evening okay i was i was going to get away from them but I wanted to see them. I wanted to appreciate them because they were significant. This wasn't like pointless anxiety. These, these were feelings that actually were commemorating a significant moment. It, it's an equanimity without numbness. That's what it is. It's equanimity without numbness. And I don't I, I haven't tried all therapeutic drugs. There may be some that can give you that. But that's when when mindfulness is working at its best, that's the amazing thing about it.
2: That's a really evocative description, equanimity without numbness. I, I've never said you know, it before. I, I, I don't. I thank you I for the
1: question because I've actually never put it that way before.
2: I, I, I hope you don't take this wrong way. The thing it actually makes me think about, I have two dogs and they're very, very, very poorly behaved. Um, they're extremely bad dogs. But they <laughs> sound like my two dogs. Keep going. And I love them very much. But they're, you know, they're a We've had a lot of trouble getting them over their stranger danger. And the, one of the terms I've learned from dog training that I really love is non-reactivity. Mm-hmm. That what you're trying to get is not a difference in the stimuli, right? Like ideally, we'd like to be able to have people over and we'd like them to be able to, you know, see another dog while on the leash and not be afraid. Mm-hmm. So you're not trying to change the stimuli they're in. Um, you're trying to allow them to have the exact same inputs, but just not feel so reactive towards it. Um, you know, to be like one of those old Labradors who like the three year old can pull on its hair and it doesn't care. Mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, not present. It's just not reacting. And I, I think about non-reactivity a lot in, in, in my own life. I've sort of liked it better than the the term that comes out of Buddhism a lot, non-attachment. Right. Which has somehow never quite worked for me. Or I've never been able to to understand it. But it sounds a little bit like what you're speaking of here is you're you're having the same feelings, but you're not as reactive to them. They're not, they're not as much in the driver's seat.
1: Yeah, I think non-attachment in some ways may become more relevant at really deep, you know, way down the path if you're doing more meditating than you or I is doing. I think non-reactive is a really good description for kind of the um, the near-term benefits of mindfulness meditation. You're not reacting unthinkingly to your feeling. You're not blindly following the guidance of your feelings and, and letting them govern your thoughts. You are observing them, and kind of deciding whether to get on board in a certain sense. It doesn't always work that neatly and cleanly. But I mean, I remember after my first retreat, um, I came back and my daughters were, they're adults now, they were very young, and they did something that upset me. And I felt this feeling welling up that was like the, I'm going to yell at my kids feeling. It was a feeling that had typically made me yell at my kids, but something strange happened, which is that I just saw it coming up. And I thought, you know, I don't think right now I'm going to yell at my kids. And that's the way it works when it works. You're not reactive. You're more aware of the way feelings normally govern your behavior when you're not reflective. And 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 that, you know, I think is a fundamental piece of progress. And in a certain sense, deep, because what you're doing is looking at the guidance system by which natural selection kind of gets animals to do its bidding. And you're deciding whether or not you want to play the game. And I I say in the book that in some ways, I I think you can view uh, Buddhist meditation as a rebellion against natural selection. And if if it helps you to think of yourself as having this uh, kind of foe, then by all means. But in any event, Uh, I do think, you know, the the word enlightenment is, of course, big in Buddhism. And and one meaning is like the experience at the end of the path. If you ever get there, if anyone has ever gotten there and there's controversy over that, but an experience of pure, you know, perfect clarity of vision, perfect and complete, you know, whatever liberation like from suffering. But um, I think enlightenment, it helps to think of a more modest incremental version of it, which is just growing awareness of the way, you know, the levers that natural selection controls us with and and, and just seeing them more clearly and deciding whether we, we want to follow them.
2: So this is a good time, I think, to talk about one of the most interesting questions your book brings up, which is, I'm going to use a quote from you here, that our intuitive conception of our self and its bounds is arbitrary. Um, this is a big thing in Buddhism. It's also, I think, just generally a big, interesting philosophical question. And, and you go to a lot of lengths in the book to try to not argue that there is no such thing as a self, um, at least I think in the way people typically understand that term, but that we place a lot more confidence in our perception of what our self is and is not than we should. Right. Can you give me the sort of quick overview of that theory?
1: Um, yeah. So Buddhism is famous for saying, you know, the self doesn't exist. Um, you, natural reaction is, what are you talking about? Uh, and it's a good question because obviously there's some sense in which, you know, <laughs> you exist. Right. And, and Buddhism acknowledges that and kind of has ways to address it. But at the same time, a lot of our intuitions about the self are flat out wrong. We, At least that's the sense I get both from modern science and from the kind of introspection you can do when your mind is really calm. We've talked about some of these. So the idea that that the conscious self, you know, is in charge of things, it's a CEO is is greatly exaggerated. But there are other dimensions to the idea of not self. And one of them, uh, I distinguish in the book between kind of the exterior version of the not self experience. In other words, Viewing your feelings as less necessarily a part of you, viewing them a little more removed, viewing viewing your thoughts as not necessarily coming from your conscious self. Uh, That's the interior, not self-experience. And then there's the exterior, what I call the exterior, not self-experience. And this is something that really adept meditators can relate to typically. I mean, the, the people are really, really committed to the path. It's part of what they experience. It's part of what they like about their experience. And I had kind of a brush with it on a on a meditation retreat. I mean, ordinarily, I'm just another another guy trying to get, you know, some something good out of meditation from 20, 30. I do 30 minutes in the morning. But on a meditation retreat, anyone can reach depths of experience uh, that they don't normally reach in a daily practice. And I think that's very worthwhile in itself as something to kind of take home with you after the retreat. And this particular experience, I was sitting there, probably day five or so of a retreat. And uh, I felt a tingling in my foot and I and I heard a bird singing and and it really felt, and this is going to sound strange probably, but it really felt as if the bird was no less a part of me than the tingling in my foot. And the tingling in my foot was no more a part of me than the bird. It felt as if the bounds of myself had dissolved. And you know, and and again, these super adept meditators, when I describe this to them, they're like, Yeah, you're on the way. Keep keep going, you know. And uh, you know, one interesting thing about this, there are two interesting things about Buddhism. One is that the philosophical propositions like not-self or things like emptiness, on the one hand, they are claims that can be defended as philosophical claims are defended in Western philosophy. In other words, there are Buddhist arguments for them, but they are also, according to Buddhism, experiential apprehensions you can have. You can see the truth of the claim, and that's uh, just just an interesting an interesting feature. And maybe I was seeing, uh, I was experientially apprehending a certain part of the not self experience. The other interesting thing about Buddhist philosophy is the way seeing the truth about the world is supposed to bring you in touch with moral truth. Okay, so kind of the ontological truth, as philosophers might say, at least tends to encourage a clearer view of the moral truth, and in this case, with with the dissolution of self, that again, some people feel on a more regular basis, one implication of that is to sense more continuity of interest between you and the other beings in the world. That's not the only sense in which the so-called not self-experience can lead you to be more selfless in a moral sense, um, but it's an important one and a very interesting one. And you're right, I argue, from a Darwinian point of view, That you are having a morally valid intuition when you start feeling as if you are not so much more important than everyone else. I mean, you know, our own importance is, is a kind of it's something natural selection would naturally build into animals, right? I mean, obviously, it's a dog-eat-dog dog world. The one who gets the most genes in the next generation gets their traits into the next generation. So obviously, one trait that's favored is a belief that your welfare and your, you know, is is more important than that of competing animals. At the same time, it's crazy, right? Because it's logically contradictory. We can't all be more important than everyone else. That doesn't make any sense. It's this is a moral illusion That natural selection is built into us. And so, yeah, I argue in the book that in that sense, the bounds of self, to the extent that they are morally relevant, they
4: are an illusion. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have
2: One of the parts of this that interests me is how much of our our sense of self is just the way we're wired, the way our chemicals are flowing at this moment. I mean, you you talk in the book and and, and others talk about things sort of esoteric psychological disorders like mirror syndrome where you really feel something happening to someone else Mm -hmm. as if it's happening to you. Um, I I don't talk about this stuff much, but when I was in college, I I went to UC Santa Cruz and I had um, an experience with psychedelics, uh, which I've not had very much of because it's a little, can be a little scary, but where I disassociated. And I, for whatever it was, an hour, had a lot of trouble keeping grasp of what was me and what wasn't me. Mm -hmm. Was I also the other people in the room? Mm -hmm what were the boundaries of, of of my sense. And it was a very strange realization to recognize that I could put an infinitesimal quantity of chemical into my body. And my entire sense of where I stopped and the world began, to the extent that's even a, a relevant way of putting it, um, would change. Yeah, And, you know, I mean, that's one of those things. It's, it's such a trite, psychedelic experience in its own way. um but it it's really stuck with me. It, it's yeah. made it's given everything a little bit of a sense of um contingency, yeah. because it's clear that you could just, you know, change the wiring a little bit. and and the experience changes very, very, very dramatically. Let me first say, I, I think I, I say
1: I say in the book that William James, you know, the psychologist and philosopher, one of the really, really great thinkers of the last couple of hundred years, I think, said, he made the point, you know, the self is the sense of self, it, it it's a little malleable. When your offspring feel pain, it's you feel you kind of feel the pain. You feel their pain. And in, at that moment, the sense of self has expanded. You know, we were talking about dogs. I sometimes feel that way about my dogs. And, you know, interestingly, this could actually be a product of evolution and principles. I mean, dogs and humans seem to seem to have co-evolved for a while uh, and, and, you know, the way bees and flowers did, and that, that may have led, uh, humans to have a certain capacity that may remain latent in some people, but an actual biological capacity to, uh, love dogs and feel their pain. I mean, who knows, but the point is that, uh, it's, you know, and then you, you refer to that condition, mirror touch, uh, synesthesia, where people, it's a strange, Deal where people actually the, the, they see somebody suffering and they feel the pain and, and they've even shown that like the parts of their brains that would sense their own pain are active, um, so there's this kind of evidence that uh, the the bounds of consciousness needn't necessarily be confined to the self and your experience with psychedelics is is evidence that's actual evidence that that indeed consciousness can expand to identify not only with yourself, or at least no more with yourself than with other people. That's an amazing fact. Now, here's the cosmic conjecture. So far as we know, complex consciousness, the only way we know for sure that it has been brought into existence in this universe is through biological evolution. And it may be the case that the price you pay for consciousness being created by natural selection is in a sense a certain warping of consciousness uh, okay that, that like all these distortions i have that you know i'm i'm uh i'm more important than the other person that the person who gave a book of mine a negative review is a horrible person you know maliciously motivated or you know whatever Kind of distorted thing I'm thinking, you know, without sufficient, uh, evidence, or the people in the other tribe, or the people in, uh, the other ideological tribe in America today, where we're seeing so much polarization, you know, thinking the worst things about them, interpreting their behavior in the worst. Like all of these are, are, are maybe just distortions that have been the price to pay for consciousness coming into existence at all. But maybe it is within our capacity. To start working some of these distortions out through various means, maybe chemical, maybe meditation, whatever. Um, but uh, maybe that's possible. That would that would help explain the experience you get from these really adept meditators. Like some of them, I say, well, like, what is it? What do you mean? You walk around with like a feeling of not self. What's that like? And maybe some of them might say, well, I feel there's a universal field of consciousness, and I'm just one point of access to it. And I'm, well, okay. I mean, it could also help account for the fact that when you reach meditative depths, it almost seems as if the natural state of consciousness, I mean, you might think it could just revert to some kind of neutral state where it doesn't care about stuff. That's not quite what seems to happen judging by what people say and what I've experienced, you know, like on the ninth day of a retreat. Um, It's more like an appreciation of things. It's more like, the 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 world is a is a beautiful thing. Now who knows? Now I'm getting like totally.
2: Well, but this is an interesting. This is something you say at the end of your book that that rang true for me, and I thought was surprising because I'd never, I, I'd never noticed it until you said it. But that the experience of getting up uh, out of a long meditation isn't that you see things as more good or more bad, mm-hmm. but you seem to be a little bit more focused on beauty. Yeah. And that I I sort of find like when you're more focused on the stimuli, um, just sort of sensory stimuli, that if I'm just listening, I actually find a lot of sound around me very beautiful. Like Mm -hmm. I sound uh, the the sound of footsteps, I actually think is really nice. Or visually, I actually really love the way Washington, D.C. looks. And if I like get out of my head Mm -hmm. and just like look at where I am for a second, I almost always find a lot to appreciate about it. I find that weird. I find it weird that that would be. Your the one's reaction to it. Obviously, it isn't the reaction in all cases, right? I mean, you could be in places where the sounds are terrible, but but the fact that it doesn't lead you to just total disattachment, right. but to a, a kind of appreciation, I've never really understood why.
1: Yeah, it does seem to be that a calm mind is an aesthetically appreciative mind, and um, I don't understand it either because you know I, I always the first place I look for an answer to anything about human beings is evolutionary psychology. And I can't find an explanation there. And that's why I got cosmic, right? I mean, you know, one of the great unsolved problems is the existence of consciousness. It's not obvious why it's like something to be alive. You can imagine animals that do a perfectly good job of getting their genes in the the next generation and don't have subjective experience. We don't know why it is. We don't know what it is. And so I'm just saying it's conceivable that uh, these meditators who, who... you know, report this ongoing kind of bliss, which is very much grounded in aesthetic appreciation, I think, in a way, Um, maybe that's some kind of default state of consciousness. Maybe consciousness is a good thing. And you've got a, you know, natural selection in order to turn it, get it into complex form via our brains, has to inject some bad stuff in it, but into it, but maybe you can work that stuff out. This is a crackpot speculation this is something you should only say in a dorm room uh you know after five bomb or on hits. a podcast
2: because no way anybody's listening <clears throat> right. this long into a podcast <laughs> especially
1: this one probably oh ouch <laughs> no i don't mean you i don't mean i don't mean the ezra klein show i mean the bob Wright appearance on the ezra klein show <laughs> oh, okay, i was being <laughs> my charmingly self-effacing self ezra
2: no 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 it's fine um but but so that one one place that that leaves you a little bit is the work you're talking about here is really a tremendous amount. Um, You know, you say over and over and over again in the book that, you know, there are these much more advanced meditators than you. You know, you're on a a book tour about a book about Buddhism and you're having trouble queuing to a a meditative practice. I certainly have been trying to be regular about this for, for many years now. And, you know, I'm only successful in three or four or six month spurts. Is this just too much to ask of people who have jobs, who have Um, you, you know, who are busy. I don't seem to know many people who, unless they really are devoted to this in a singular way, are able to hold to the levels of practice that lead to some of the more profound changes you're talking about. Is there a version of this that is lighter that is really worthwhile, or is this a lot of interesting, profound truths, but perhaps mindfulness meditation is too costly in terms of time, in terms of dedication, a way to get at it for it to be realistic for most people?
1: Uh, Yeah, there's a couple of answers. Some of these meditation apps, some people find helpful as maybe a kind of a shortcut that makes the whole thing more efficient. I mean, there's Headspace, there's 10 percent happier, and uh, some people report good things from them. Also, I have to admit, I have the luxury of not having to report to any place. I work at home. I largely set my own hours that definitely um, makes it easier. Um, At the same time, there is the argument that in terms of just sparing the time, that 25, maybe 30 minutes on the cushion in the morning will largely pay for itself in the sense that you'll spend less time fuming, you know, writing ill-advised emails, whatever ways you either waste time or actually worse, worse yet, you know, generate problems that you then have to spend time solving. So I, I think, you know, there, there, there is the case that even though it's natural to get up in the morning and say, I don't have time for this, it may be that actually you do because it would pay for itself. The, the other thing I'd say is that um, for me, um, I've averaged almost a retreat a year since 2009, and for me, that's an important booster. You know, it, 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 I can definitely feel sometimes you go on, and 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 after eight, nine months, or maybe earlier, you know, your commitment starts to fade. Uh, you, you'll still think, yeah, I know it's worth it. I know my day tends to go better when I meditate, but um, but I just, you know, you uh, a few days in a row, you'll just be, I I don't have the time, and then you'll you'll get out of the habit. I find retreats. Um, useful rechargers. Now, maybe that too is a luxury that not everyone can afford, a, a week every 12 or 18 months. But for me, that's very valuable. I definitely would say I would really encourage people to try a retreat because I think even if it's a one-time experience, I mean, it's like your experience with psychedelics. You're probably glad you did it, right? I mean, it was, it was a real perspective changer. And I would say the same thing um, about retreats. If only for what you see your mind is capable of, they
2: are usually valuable. Let me ask you a question about retreats because I've talked to so many people who say something along the lines that you do, that first couple days were a form of misery and then on day four or on day six, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it turns around. Is it worth doing one or two days? I personally have not gotten much out of very
1: short retreats. Now, I do think I'm an unusually hard case. I have a very, very limited attention span. I'm not a picture of emotional equilibrium. I have a lot of things working against me. As a meditator, some people, uh, you know, get something out of them. They say, I'm glad I did a weekend retreat. I I have not very often heard people rave about a one-day or two-day retreat. Um, Now, it can be a good way to get to kind of check out a meditation teacher and see if you want to do a longer retreat with them. That's actually my first retreat. Uh, I chose my teachers after doing just a one day retreat. I mean, you just, just basically spent about eight hours with them. And I, and then I thought, yeah, they're worth, um, they're worth trying uh, in longer form. You know, for me, it is day three, four, five where things often start to get really kind of interesting and, and, and deep. And, uh, And the day before the final retreat can be distracting because you're thinking about the fact that it's going to end or you're starting to think, how am I going to get home or whatever? So I personally find that a week is about the minimum um, for a really, really interesting experience.
2: What do you think people need to do if they've listened to this podcast and they want to prepare to do a sustained retreat? Um, It's a pretty... Psychologically intense experience. You mm-hmm. talked about it being very harrowing. There are stories out there of people having pretty negative psychological reactions to retreats. Um, do is that something people that that you believe people can just jump into to sort of ten days of silent of mostly silent contemplation, or is there a you know preparatory work that is helpful for trying to experience that? Well, I would research the place and the teachers
1: um and and ideally you'd get a recommendation from someone you know or go online and um look into it it is true that some people have a a very small percentage of people have have not just negative experiences but kind of enduringly negative experiences And, and as i said it's much more common to have some negative experience during the retreat in my experience most people um Find those productive in the long run. the The way they looked at at an issue they were having on a retreat, but it is as you said earlier, extreme sports for the mind with both uh, highs and lows. One thing I would say is, do not bring your smartphone. Now, some places will have an official prohibition, and some will not enforce it so strongly. But by all means, put your email on auto reply. Do not bring your smartphone. You should get, be getting no news from the outside world, having no contact with anyone in the outside world. You know, if there's some crisis that you just would have to deal with that, that might arise, then have the person who would know about it have the phone number of the office at the meditation retreat, you know, and bear in mind that at a, at, at a good retreat center, with good teachers, there are people to talk to if things go badly. Typically, um, th- there's a couple of times in the week when you check in anyway, either one-on-one for just like, you know, five, seven minutes, or in a group with maybe seven or eight people for a 45 minutes where you, you can bring any issues you're having to the attention of the teacher. But beyond that, if you're having a serious problem, they want to know about it. And, and, and they are, um, they are there to help. But I would definitely buffer myself from the outside world as you go in, because being off the grid is an important part of the experience.
2: What's the longest of these that you've done? I had Yuval Harari on the show. He's the author of, of Sapiens and Homodeus, And he told me that he goes on a 60-day a silent meditation retreat every year. Yeah, I'd and love to do that. I was sort of stunned by that. The
1: longest I've done is two weeks. And I want to do that again with the book now written. Because one thing, I mean, there's, uh, you know, one one teacher said to me uh, at one point about five years ago, she was aware I was writing this book and it was during a retreat or you no, know, maybe it was at the end of a retreat. And she, I was talking to her and she said, you know, I think you may have to decide between writing this book and liberation. And I kind of think that's funny because I don't think I'm a, a very good candidate for complete and utter liberation to begin with, although I'm glad that she takes that aspiration so seriously and brings it to every student of hers. Um, but um, I do think that having, you know, always being in book writing mode and thinking, oh, this was an interesting experience. How will I describe this? Or is this worth putting in the book? That's a distraction. And so um, I would like to do at a minimum a, a, a two week retreat without having to think about that uh, and 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 ideally longer if I can find the time. But as you know, it's hard.
2: How does the ideal of liberation and also the ideal of just a more calm, non-attached, a uh, self-questioning approach to life fit with the desire to be engaged in general but all, all also in in this era specifically. I mean you and I know each other not from talking about Buddhism but from talking about politics more generally. You, you 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 were on blogging heads, you know, you were a big participant in in the debate about the Iraq war. Now we're in this age of Trump and I know that you've been involved in setting up some organizations or or some thinking about how to thoughtfully push back against some of the more toxic elements of his administration. How do you see that in terms of having to make a choice between the work you're doing uh, as a journalist and being liberated? How do you see the work you do as just an engaged member of the, the citizenry or as a political journalist and wanting to pursue some of these personal ideals and 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 different uh, uh, approaches to the world.
1: Yeah, there is a connection. I mean, one one common fear, one question that's asked is, is there a danger that I will become so kind of contented that I will lose my passion to change the world and lose my concerns about social injustice and world peace and so on? I think that's an interesting theoretical question, but I think for almost everyone, certainly for me, um, I would have to go a long way down the meditative path before... It didn't have a positive effect on my engagement with the world. And what I mean by that is I think a lot of us, certainly a lot of us in America today are so passionate about what we see as going wrong and so agitated by it that the danger is being too reactive, is is. is overreacting I mean and, and I mean you're right I I started a thing called mindfulresistance.net we put out a weekly newsletter you can sign up and get it and and, and right now you know it's early days we're, we're, I hope to build it out and and make it a resource along other dimensions as well but the idea part of the idea not all of the idea is that there is a certain amount of what from even a tactical point of view is overreaction to Donald Trump I mean obviously uh, you know I think I think he is a, and what he represents is a grave peril, but there is a danger of spending too much time reacting to his frequent provocations. And it, I think it's dangerous for two reasons. One is it can be uh, a distraction. We do need to get busy addressing grievances that actually helped him win the election. And the other thing is that sometimes, uh, you know, a certain kind of extreme reaction kind of plays into his narrative, I think. Um, and and helps him convince the very core of his base or keep them convinced that everyone hates him, holds him in contempt, therefore holds them in contempt, um, and so on. But but it is a fine line because on the one hand, you know, he's, he violates important norms and we can't let that go unremarked upon. And I also don't think you have to meditate to try
2: to take this approach and be more mindful in the everyday sense of the term. I would like to hear you unpack the specifics of of how, of how what mindful resistance means to you a little bit more, because I, I hear that at the 30,000-foot level. But for just someone listening to this, someone trying to engage with it, somebody trying to modulate their own reactions, not just as a as a question of, of outcomes, right? I mean, what you were saying there is sometimes it plays into his hands. But what does it mean to try to experience this era, to try to read the news in this era without... Without falling into a million stories, um, without completely, completely giving yourself over to it. I find it personally extremely hard to keep that kind of emotional, intellectual separation from this moment that we're in. It is hard. And although I don't think you
1: have to meditate to to take a stab at doing it, I do think meditation helps. Because one thing mindfulness meditation helps, if you're doing it regularly, is it helps you feel the way – feelings are influencing your thought and welling up and just gives you a moment to decide whether you want to get on board with them. So, for example, you know when you're retweeting, when you retweet something and, and and I myself have been guilty of retweeting things that I really hadn't evaluated sufficiently. And this is, you know, the source of of in a certain sense, fake news on both sides. It's people sharing and retweeting things um without checking them out and i personally feel that um although in an ideal world people on both sides would stop doing that i i actually think it's an area where unilateral disarmament may may be good in the in the sense that i think if even the anti-trump side gets a little better more reflective about what they retweet whether or not that's happening on the other side i i think that's good for the anti-trump side because you quit feeding his narrative but in any event if you notice why you retweet something or share it on Facebook, it's driven by a feeling virtually always. And you should you should just ask yourself, what feeling is driving this? And is this um, a valid uh, feeling? And, and that's one of the areas where, um, you know, I, I think meditation can
2: actually help. Just thinking about it can help. When you talk earlier about the ways in which we're not designed for the modern world, This has all changed quite a bit in, you know, just even the 15 years I've been in journalism. And I don't think it's good for us. Putting aside even the question of whether or not it's good for the world, I don't know anybody who seems to me to be a better person on Twitter than they are in the normal world. (laughs) I, I don't know anybody who seems to feel that this stuff brings out their their better angels and it makes right. it easier for them to to approach the world generously. And and I'll say for me, I don't just mean to say this in the passive voice. I don't feel like it 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 it's a better form of me. Right. And yet it's very addicting. Yep. And it's very You know, you talk about an attachment to a self. You're also sort of curating this other online self that has this constant feedback, instant feedback mechanisms from a whole community, a community that maybe likes one part of you but wouldn't like some of the other parts of you. It's a very complicated space to be in. Um, I often think the best thing to do is not to play, but also that doesn't really feel um, certainly in my job like like a viable option.
1: Right. Um, no, it's it's potentially toxic. I mean, you can't. I think you can't not play. Uh, y- y- well, you can if you want, but I I, I think uh, if you take you know seriously, you know, if you're trying to influence a world, you 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 want to play. But you're right. Temptations and corruptions are everywhere. I heard you say um, on your podcast with is it Angela Nagel who wrote that book? Uh, 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 kill all the normies. Is that yeah? Uh, so you were you were saying you know when you get attacked by the other tribe on Twitter, it tends to make you more extreme. Well, that's true. But it also, when you get embraced by your own tribe, that tends to make you more extreme. In other words, you will tweet things, you will tweet like these sarcastic things about Trump or things that are somewhat oversimplifying about Trump, and you get a ton of positive reinforcement for it. And and look, sometimes, look, sarcasm has its place, ridicule has its place. Maybe sometimes oversimplification does, but I, I I do have the view which I you know I can't spell out here and give examples and everything. I do have the view that beyond a certain point some of these things are actually helping Trump if not expand his base at least deepen the attachment of his base um to him and uh it, it's just a constant it, it's a constant temptation it may take a commitment like you know, like mindfulness meditation. That's pretty extreme, right? Spending 20, 30 minutes a day on something. Maybe the temptations are so uh, deep that if you want to combat them most fully, you know, you need some kind of discipline. If not that one, then some other one.
2: So speaking of, of good disciplines, you can get off of Twitter and read. And something we always use to end the show is to ask our guests to recommend three books that they've read that have influenced them that they think the audience should check out. So of course, aside from your excellent new book, what are three books you'd recommend to people? Oh, this is so
1: embarrassing because you know I, I, I uh, the limited attention span that impedes my meditation keeps me from from reading a whole lot of books that are not part of whatever my um, research is. If you want to go cosmic, you know, get back to the, some of the consciousness questions. Read this book by Erwin Schrödinger. It, 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 it's it, it's a companion volume. Both of them are very short. What is life and mind? Uh, and matter, I think, is the other one. Uh, he's he's the um, physicist. Um, you know, a good kind uh, of good how to book on uh, meditation. A lot of people like uh, mindfulness in plain English. Um, you know, there, there's an old book called "What the Buddha Taught." You know, from a Theravadan Buddha Buddhist perspective. The technique I do, a a big American figure was Joseph Goldstein, who wrote a book called The Experience of uh, Insight. That's about Vipassana meditation, which is closely related to mindfulness. So those are some of the
2: the things. Bob Wright, thank you very much. Thank you, Ezra. Thank you to Bob. Uh, That was great. Uh, I I left it a lot to think about and um, actually like a lot to, to reflect on. I hope you all enjoyed it, too. As always, thank you to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, to our engineer, Peter Leonard. The Ezra Concho Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back, as always, next week.
3: This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com podcast or wherever you listen.